0: Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You
1: should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
0: Hey, Mike. Hi, Diane. Hi, we're here. Yeah. Um. Hey, Mike. In the interest of full disclosure, Mike and I talked twice today, once yesterday. So I really think we're better when we're unscripted. So if we sound a little stale, it's because we talked too much today and yesterday. I do have, uh, on oil and gas pricing, not a great deal is going on. I mean, I know the price of oil is up a lot this week, today because of the European Union making some progress on embargoing Russian oil. But as near as we can tell from people who are in the business, the oil is more or less moving. It gets bought by smaller Chinese refiners, not the large refiners, Sinopec and CINOC uh, and PetroChina, but smaller refiners. And they, they buy it for about $20 off. It's interesting, uh, where the these locations where you load oil? The Black Sea is off. Black Sea is considered to be a war zone. so. No one should send anchors into the Black Sea. But in the Baltic, these cargoes get loaded in what are called Afromaxes, which I think around 80,000 tons. That's a small ship to go all the way to China or anywhere distant. So I think what is happening is the Afromaxes are somehow loaded into larger ships, and so the cargoes are mixed. So when the Chinese refiner picks them up, they can ignore the fact that they, well, a BLCC is a 2 million barrel ship and an Apple max will be at, I don't know, a 600,000 barrel ship. So they can ignore the fact that a third of the cargo came from, uh, came from Rosneft or whomever in Russia. So the oil is moving. The products are kind of a different issue. The world is really short distillate or two oil. And I think it was a combination of jet fuel coming on when, during the pandemic, the distillate was put into diesel and, and other products as, uh, people's interest in traveling picked up. Now, all of a sudden that's going back into the jet pool. So distill is really the crack spread. In other words, what you get for the distill is compared to what the crude costs is at an all time high. That, that's probably temporary. Yes, yeah, it does have an impact on investment. A lot of us have at uh, Star Group because Star Group, of course, buys this. Oil. That's what turns into, the, you know, that is heating all. Uh, it's a little bit offset at Star Group because if you read the latest 10Q, on average, we're delivering 20% biofuel. So biofuel is made from, you know, non-fossil fuels, which are acquired from global and shell and people like that. So. That offsets a little bit, I suppose, although I suspect the biofuel will go up and down with 2L. In terms of natural gas, natural gas pricing is gone way beyond. I, I did some analysis maybe at the beginning of the year, the end of last year, saying that I thought uh, this is for me and my colleagues and, and companies. I, made, I, I It wasn't very elaborate, but it was making the case that where would average $3.50 in the US, up from $2.50 during the pandemic. And that turned out to be way low. So I redid it a, a, a month or so ago, $4. And now that's turning out to be low. The trip for the remainder of this year is over $7. And the trip for the 23 is 5 And get all the way out to 24 before you get anywhere near close to $4. And taro, which was we traded at under a dollar in the pandemic. The gas prices were very low, closed at 37 yesterday, so it's been a heck of a move. We acquired a whole bunch of Southwestern stock, at, uh, and, and we owned a lot of it, so we helped charge the company. I mean, we own as individuals, and we still own some of the partnerships. Southwestern, we trade our Indigo in for Southwestern, a lot of the management people and some of our other investors in the company did a cleanup transaction with JP Morgan in assembly $5. We've been averaging $8 or more selling our stock. So that's come out very well. I don't know how gas stays at this level, but it's a huge, huge, huge development. And does some of it relate to LNG? I don't know. I mean, obviously LNG is a positive because you're changing that gas and LNG cost about $2 to do, cost about dollar to ship it to Europe. So that's, you know, $7 plus $3 is $10. LNG is trading at, at 20 to 30 But LNG was trading in Europe and, and North Asia because they kind of go up and down together at $30 last summer. So long before Ukraine was in, invaded. I think what happened last summer, the European way too dependent on renewables and they just got caught short, and of course, Russia was literally what that, pretty much gas and storage. So I guess you could say that was Ukraine related. But now, all 13 B's, which is our out of 90 B's of demand, is all running flat out, uh, huge huge margin in, in making it and making a selling which doesn't necessarily belong to the Cheneers of this world, who's the largest uh, holder of export capacity because they've contracted away. So it's the utilities who have these contracts that are making the windfall. There will be more LNG, but it takes two, two and a half years to build an LNG train. That really can't be expedited, especially now with all these supply problems. So it's not going to be expedited. So the thirteen will go to 18th, but it'll happen over, you know, years three and four and five from now. And then by the time we get five years out, there'll probably be another five. But that, to me, still doesn't translate into... $7 for the rest of 22 and $5 next year, but markets are markets. I think we'll just get everything on interest rates. We talk interest rates every week and, and, you know, the Fed Reserve just did what it's supposed to do, which is go 50 basis points. And I haven't had a chance to check what they announced on running down their balance sheet. So who knows, uh, and, and, you know, interest rates are going to be higher. Uh, stock market's been a terrible place to be the drawdown through April is more or less happened in a long time, but a four-month drawdown. You know, the stock market should be getting a better place to look for uh, good investments, and the bond market is the bond market is the bond market. I do want to comment on natural events, as Diane said, saving the world. I think there's a better than even chance, and this is my own theory. This is not things I've read particularly. I think there's a better than even chance that when Russia has its May Ninth parade, which is there when they celebrate beating the Germans in World War II, um, that Putin or apparently has been very ill, and, and there's a chance he's already anointed whoever's going to stand in for him if he has to go in for a serious operation. But presumably it's now, you know, it's now a fourth parade. Presumably he hangs on till May 9th. But I think it's possible that he will or whoever's standing in his place announced a ceasefire in place in the Ukraine. The reason I think that is that I think that they will benefit enormously as an economy from doing that. They are stretched, I think, to, you know, buy missiles, buy, replace inventory of war material and whatnot. And. Russia is not a very large economy, not even a very large country, only 150 million people. And this would allow them to declare victory. Now, what would the result be? Well, as ceasefire fired plates, which they'd hang on to the property, they kind of in control of and Ukraine's would hang on to theirs. I, I don't think it would mean that no one would be firing any bullets. I mean, Keep in mind, for the last several years, ever since Crimea was annexed, the separatists in eastern Ukraine, bolstered by Russian special forces, Russian soldiers without wearing uniforms, have been firing shells at each other and not exactly engaging in hand-to-hand combat, but basically, I think a total of 15,000 Ukrainian military personnel lost their lives over the last several years since the annexation of so it was serious fighting. I think that would continue Now, <clears throat> here's the question, as it affects oil and debt prices what would the impact be on sanctions? There is no question that Germany will use less Russian debt but I think a ceasefire in place would allow Germany to continue to take Maybe 40% or 50% of the gas they had been taking from Russia. They will build their LNG export facility, uh, uh, you know, their LNG import facilities. They'll continue to do use facilities in Rotterdam. There's pretty extensive gas grid in Europe. They'll continue to move gas around. They'll take over control of storage fields, which were otherwise owned or leased to Gazprom and they'll fill the storage fields. They will get all those storage fields filled by the end of the year, but the chance of having to curtail industry in, in Germany or just have rolling blackouts because they don't have a, enough power in the winter—all that will be much less likely. I, I think it, the sanctions won't end, but I think they will be diluted. The impact on oil and gas markets, I think, will be negative. I. Remember, while all this is going on, we've lockdowns going on in China. Oil demand in China has to be off by a significant percentage, and that'll find its way into the market. And then Europe isn't doing very well economically. Hey, in the United States, we had real GMP decline last in in the quarter to March 31. So all this will have an impact on oil. So does. Does oil go to back to fifty dollars and sixty dollars, no. But this idea that it it can keep going up and maybe go to one thirty or something, I, I I think it's it's unrealistic. Now, by next Wednesday, we will as May night will come and draw. If This doesn't happen, I'm not saying that it has to happen when they have a they parade in Moscow. But if it doesn't happen on May night, I think it's less likely to happen thereafter. But you know, so we'll just have to see on that. As far as all this activity, not just on oil and gas prices, but in interest rates and, and, and economic conditions affect the tech things that Mike specializes in. Remember, we don't invest in oil or gas or making iPhones or servicing uh, cloud customers like Amazon and Microsoft do. What we invest in is cash flow. And the question is of all the companies that that well, I, I own a couple of companies, Mike owns a lot more, where is the cash flow less impacted by trends we see? Now, one of the things we see is that consumers faced with high price for gasoline and diesel and high price for utility bills are definitely curtailing spending. So I think Mike and I have been consistent on this and saying, focus on things that are business to business not business to consumer. Look at what happened in Netflix. I think it's down, I don't know, like 50 or 70% this year. Taiwan, WCM, ASML, NVIDIA. Mike's going to talk about AMD, Salesforce, Snowflake, Microsoft. These all are the pretty much being driven by business to business activity. With that, Mike's going to, from the review of what's happened the last week or so, Mike's going to tell you which one. Of, of, all those things He's both positive that over to your bite.
1: Okay. So I, I guess what we're really talking about is like how durable was a cash flow, or it's, it's a particular business model for that matter. One of the things that you can look at to decide if you think the cash flows are durable is you look at what they charge for their service versus the value that the customer gets from it. You can. Do a whole bunch of work around that and try to you know, talk to some customers, figure out what maybe an ROI is mm-hmm. if you're talking about a business-to-business project. But also remember that a lot of business projects don't get funded unless there's a positive ROI. Anything that's actually in the business-to-business space, as far as the services go, especially in software, tends to have some sort of positive ROI in order to make it work. In an inflationary environment, that ROI is only more dramatically impacted when labor rates are going higher and the product we're talking about reduces the number of people that need to be involved with a particular process. So you could apply that same formula to a bunch of different things. You could apply it to software as a service, something like Salesforce. You could apply it to some sort of machinery in a factory that makes it easier cheaper, faster to produce a product. Those types of things are going to be more durable. Another way to think about it too, is, is how much versus the price of the product, how much value does the customer get out of it? And, you know, will again, I'll, I'll use the Netflix example because people probably get a lot of value because not the Netflix subscription, but the difference between that and a business business is that it's the difference between necessary and, and uh, discretionary, I guess, if you will. So. If Netflix is a nice business because it provides lots of value to its customers and they're not likely to turn it off, it's not a necessary business because they will turn it off if push comes to shove and it costs more money to fill up the gas tank. And that's more important than sitting on the couch watching Netflix. If you're uh, licensing
0: Windows and Microsoft decides to increase that by 10 or $15, you're much less likely to drop that than... If your Netflix subscription goes up by 2 or $3 or it looks like some of the other competing streaming services are more interesting. So if you, you, you have a vulnerability in a challenged economy with inflation and economic slowdown, you don't have the same exposure with something that you need every day and you'll gladly pay the extra 10 or $15 a month for a software license. The other one that's interesting, I'm trying to throw a mic out on this because we didn't talk about this, is I'm a long time happy Amazon stockholder. Amazon's down a lot. I mean, it peaked at 3,400. I know where it is now, or 2, 2,600. But Amazon's got both because they have the cloud business, which continues to grow and has high flow. And once you commit your, to give up your own servers and, and use Amazon services or, or Microsoft Azure or or the comparable number for Google or Oracle, you might shop around a little bit, but you're not having I mean, to give up your service. You're a little vulnerable. On the other hand, I think pretty clearly Amazon built too many warehouses and, uh, too many trucks and probably added too many people. And like, when, when they announced their first quarter earnings, there was general horror, you know, that they had been clawed out for expanding beyond uh, demand for their product. And uh, I think. think the answer to that is is, that's true and it would be better if you were just in Amazon Web Services. On the other hand, you have the great low-cost juggernaut that Amazon represents. So presumably, they'll be able to uh, survive or maybe even prosper uh, a couple of quarters of weaker results. uh, Do you think I'm being too optimistic there, Mike?
1: No, not at all. I mean, I, I If you look at, at just at the numbers from the Amazon earnings, what you see is that revenue essentially grew really well in COVID, their expenses also went way up and generally in line with expenses, but as the revenue growth rate slowed, and this is going back to the middle of last year, um, their expenses didn't slow down as fast as revenue. So this quarter is a whole bunch of quarters in the making, I guess is the conclusion now. The flip side is Amazon made a ton of investments over the last couple of years. The company is just going to continue to grow. I don't think I'm too worried about the fact they made those investments. In fact, you know, they made a lot of those investments at a time when prices were generally lower. So they may have a little excess capacity at some of their filling centers. They're going to eat through that in the holiday season. So I, I don't know. I think this is one of those periods in Amazon's history where Everybody gets kind of down on it. I haven't looked at the, I haven't gone to refresh my evaluation on, on Amazon yet, but it's rare when a company like this, that's this good that has gotten um, so much bigger from their logistics footprint perspective through COVID is now available for cheaper than it was or about what it was at the beginning of COVID. So it's, I I think that is one to, to look at. And
0: what about advertising supported? I mean, Google kind of a disappointing quarter, and of course, when you pull Google apart, it's it a terrific company. It is the one high tech company that I own and, but it. But it's it advertising supported is what Google is. I mean, they just don't really sell much more than all the advertising know uh, goes along with search and and, and their their streaming products. But I do think that. Even though Facebook had kind of a snapback or Meta, Meta had a snapback, one, one way businesses can cope with shrinking profit margins would be to uh, skip a little bit on advertising. Now that being said, the advertising products that these entities uh, deliver are remarkably sophisticated, and they've been taking market share from broadcast TV and every all print media. Uh, I would. Under, underestimate that they may be able to take market share if the overall amount spent on advertising is going down. I would put it past these companies that may, you know, to make up for it with taking more market share. It seems to be more vulnerable than Microsoft charging it a bit more for access to uh, their office programming. But with that, I'll turn it back to Mike. Yeah,
1: but there's a number of things that happened in the with Google earnings, you gotta remember that 2020 wasn't really a great year for them. And then 2020, there was a huge bounce back. Um, and as, as everybody kind of went online and started buying stuff online, all search advertising, or all, all forms of digital ad- advertising did really well. There, there are some really weird complications with Apple's ATT that kind of skewed a lot of it. Like they had more trouble with their YouTube ads in the event, someone was on an Apple phone and had the YouTube app, meaning with the YouTube app, you can't end ATT. You may not be able to track that person as effectively and retarget that person. The flip side, because of ATT, they were, they received a lot more search traffic on Android because Android hadn't implemented an ATT program yet. So, so there's a lot of things to work out there think about Google that I think is probably the most compelling thing about it. And if you think about it from a durability perspective is they have a lot of product that they do not charge for. So it's in a way they have a bunch of valves and maybe they just need to go open up some more valves. Um, that being said, comparing it to Microsoft, I mean, it's, it's hard to deny that the Microsoft office suite is basically essential for business. Many companies have tried to produce a product that is better to unseat it and google even offers a free or almost free version of the microsoft office suite but for 99 percent of businesses you're going to buy the microsoft product it's nice to be the monopolist and provide a product that everybody must have and for the most part likes so i think that helps define the difference between the valuations of those two companies
0: yeah, speaking of valuations, we wring our hands on valuations. We only got about a couple of minutes left. But of course, Intel, which has this remarkable career, Pat Gelsinger, the, the CEO now, really, really appealing. I recommend there's a Bloomberg, couple of Bloomberg interviews with him. It's just really heartwarming to see how someone you know, going to a community college in the middle of in rural Pennsylvania exceeds to where he's a you know, vice president Intel at 28. Should have been the air pack, got shuttled aside, got picked up by Michael Dell. And <clears throat> Michael Dell, spin out VMware work and then recruited back to Intel to sit on the board with Michael Dell's approval. And at his third meeting, they decided to make him the CEO, which they probably should have done 15 years ago. So it's a very appealing story. It's also a very cheap stock. But I just, the remaining few minutes am had their earnings release and did very, very well. And Intel had their earnings release and not so good. And I keep asking Mike, we can't, can't put Apple and Google and uh, Amazon designing their own ships where, you know, you really need to have a factory to make them like Taiwan on semiconductor is, you know, one of bike Holdings. How hard is it for Intel to get over to where Apple would consider having Intel make the chip, its own design chips rather than Taiwan semiconductor. We're going to have to go into next week because we're going to run out of time, but just for the last minute or two, it's a lot, it's a lot harder than you would expect. And with that, Michael closed off with some of the difficulties of taking Intel into the Foundry business.
1: So I have some decent data points on this, actually. So this is all from the earnings call, but Intel's ramping five new nodes over the next couple of years. They're in process on Intel 7, which is the 10 nanometer, Intel 4, which is actually 7 nanometer, and then Intel 3 and 28A and 18A are coming later. The cost, they talk about the cost of ramping Intel 7 right now are really dragging on their earnings. I'm I'm sorry, it's actually Intel 10 that's even dragging on their earnings. So Their gross margin is 53%, which is exactly the same as AMD. So AMD gets their chip made by Taiwan semiconductor. So it's almost like Intel's getting no benefit from their foundry at all. The second thing that I'll point out is that there are rumors and none of this is confirmed yet, but there are rumors that Intel's moving more production to Taiwan semiconductor for the seven nanometer process, because they're having trouble getting it to work at Intel today. So that kind of tells you it's really hard to scale the production of this stuff. When you've had just one player doing all the work, it's sort of like everything accrues to the incumbent, if you will. It's going to be challenging for Intel to ramp and it's going to be expensive. It's going to hit their gross margins and if there's no benefit in being in IDM, why why not be fabless and just rely on Taiwan semiconductor? Because the margins are the same and your operation's a fraction of the size.
0: Just in closing, there's a great JB Diamond interview on Bloomberg, both on video. And one of the things he speaks to is the uh, difficulty China would have to get sanctioned, like we've just sanctioned Russia and everyone's focused about how difficult it is for everyone who gets things from China, but i mean, in this interview, makes the case that it'd be very difficult for China. So the idea that somehow China would come across the Taiwan Strait and try to annex Taiwan, and that would get in the way of you know, what has been a great investment, Taiwan semiconductor, right? I think before kind of establishing too much probability of that, I strongly recommend listening to uh, the Jamie Dimon interview from this morning. And with that, everyone stay well and be healthy, and we'll be on next Wednesday. Take care. for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.